you have a Bible, uh, open up to Acts chapter 15, and we'll actually back up a few verses. We left off in verse 24 of chapter 14 last week, so we will pick up there uh, and begin our time together um, as this uh, chapter, this story tonight, this account of something that took place in history, um, really is uh, the, the culmination of Paul's first missionary journey, which we've spent the last several uh, several Wednesdays talking about. Paul's trip to Antioch of Pisidia, uh, his time in Iconium, his time in Lystra, his time in Derby, and we talked about um, the different uh, experiences that he had in, in those uh, those cities. Um, there, were, <laughs> the last uh, town that he was in, he was uh, literally uh, stoned and left for dead, and, and uh, thankfully, um, and through the miracle uh, of God. He was not dead. He got back up and, and went to the next town and kept preaching the gospel, which we have seen that evangelistic spirit um, on display. We spent last week talking about uh, what it means to uh, to follow in this same model, this same evangelistic model that they paid for us, their enthusiasm that they had, uh, the endurance that they, uh, they exhibited, uh, and the humility that they uh, were filled with and, and were, uh, were focused with. So building off of that, uh, I want us to read Acts 14, uh, verse 24 through 28, because this bridges us into chapter 15, and there's something that this text presents um, as awesome news, something that this chapter ends uh, by, by giving us some incredible news that many are receiving as such, as good news, celebrating for what God is doing. But the next chapter is going to show us that a different audience responds an entirely different way to this good news. So we'll get into that. Acts 14, 24. It says they passed through Pisidia. They came to Pamphylia. Now, when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. So, again, that's just Paul, Luke, telling us the different cities that Paul went to. In every city that he went to, the gospel was spread. The church was uh, the church group. Verse 26, from there they sailed to Antioch. That's Antioch in Syria where the church um, had, uh, where the church plant was. They sailed to Antioch where they had been commended, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. So this takes them back to where they started. Acts 13, they leave Antioch of Syria and now they're back in Antioch of Syria. Verse 27. Now, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them. So they tell about what happened from Acts 13 through Acts 14. They reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So we can't but imagine this was a moment of elation. This was a moment of celebration because this was why they went, right? When they started in Antioch, it was a group that was based primarily Jewish that began to witness to the Gentiles. By Acts 13, there are more Gentiles there than there were Jews. And they decide, hey, we must take the gospel to the whole world. After all, that's what Jesus said we should do back in Acts 1. So here we're told a door of faith has opened, emphasis on faith, a door of faith has opened to Gentiles. That's an incredible statement and a statement that has been built, we've been building up towards, right? We've talked about how a few Gentiles were coming. We talked about how equal numbers of Gentiles were coming. We read back in Acts 14 that Paul says to the Jews, I turn to the Gentiles and now 
He reports to the, to the church at Antioch. A door has opened. This isn't just a, 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 an isolated incident. This isn't just something that a few Gentiles are coming. It's clear. A door of faith has been opened. Gentiles are coming to know God through Jesus Christ. I can't emphasize enough how big of a statement that is. A statement that you could never imagine or we shouldn't be able to imagine that ever landing as controversial or negative in anybody's ears. But one that actually sent a very large portion of the church to a place of great anxiety and a great uneasiness. Now, I want you to think about that. How in the world would this statement, a door of faith has been opened to Gentiles, how in the world could that statement ever land on ears of Christians that doesn't produce celebration? How could that ever cause anxiety or uneasiness in a Christian's heart? We're going to get to the bottom of that tonight, which I think will be a worthwhile conversation. So tonight, we're going to talk about and study a story in a text that should be more popular. It should be more referenced. It should be more celebrated than it is. Uh, it may be one of the most underplayed, underrated, underemphasized chapters of all scriptures. A, a few weeks ago, uh, we talked about how Acts 9 is one of those top five moments in scriptures because Saul becomes a Christian. Paul joins the church. Uh, again, that's one of the top five moments in world history, I think, because officially the, the, the church got its guy. It got its greatest missionary that would ever live. Um, in terms of getting the church up and off the ground, spreading the gospel to Gentiles, that was a big moment. It was a game changer. Now, in Acts 15, nothing new happens, but what began back in Acts 9 really comes to its full fruition, and the mission to the Gentiles really gets its seal of approval in Acts 15 um, after what initially is opposition. And we'll look at that in detail tonight. Uh, we see a renewal and a recommitment around the things that had already happened, already been established, that stand out in this chapter. Now, Acts 15 is one of those chapters that serves to underline or underscore what has already been stated. So we're going to, re we're going to retread some ground tonight. But the reason why we're retreading the ground is because there were some people that weren't okay with what was going on. Uh, which proved that it needed to be talked about again. And honestly, it's something that needs to be talked about every generation. Because the things that were controversial to this audience are still controversial in today's world, in today's church. And that just shouldn't be yet. It proves this conversation is worth having and necessary to have. Sometimes we assume the message is clear, but in our world, things can get convoluted easily. Uh, people can get crossed up. We need things like Acts 15 to clarify and cement what is and what isn't true. So it's especially true, and maybe more importantly, when it comes to, the Christ to Christianity, to the church, when it comes to our trying to understand where we stand with God. All of that being true about Acts 15 makes it more astounding that this chapter isn't more known and isn't more cited. Uh, Acts 15, I, and I'll say this, you've probably heard me talk about this before, but Acts 15 has so influenced and impacted my preaching and my ministry and my convictions that I feel like I've preached it and taught on it more than I actually have. Um, I think the last time I actually did a lesson in this chapter was five years ago, which surprises me and maybe surprises you because really the themes and the thesis of this chapter have so permeated my ministry 
getting so permeated by preaching, it feels like I talk about this stuff more than I actually maybe have. Um, but tonight might answer some of the questions you have about what really drives me, you know, why I emphasize this over that, why I give a lot of attention to this over that. Um, it may help you get a sense as to why our church does certain things and aspires to do certain things in a particular light, um, which I think is important to kind of have as, as our foundation. Um, you may walk away tonight shrugging and not seeing the big deal. Uh, that I attempt to make out of this chapter that I think this chapter makes in and of itself. Um, but by the end of this, uh, I feel like that, that, that if, if I can't communicate it clearly, it's not the scripture's fault. It's my fault uh, because I believe it, it, with all confidence this chapter lives up to the hype that I'm attempting to sell it with. Um, for some reason, though, I have a hunch that this text has just uh, – that, that just hasn't been given the attention it deserves. Um, doesn't have the clout that other chapters seem to have. If you walk up to somebody and says, hey, you know, what do you know about Acts 15? They may look at you like they don't know much because it's not a chapter people talk about a lot. And, and that's kind of a shame. It's a, really a shame. Um, unlike several other passages that people might immediately say, well, yeah, I know what that chapter is about. It's about this or that or that guy or that person or that church. Acts 15 is not one that people are going to automatically respond to, and, and that it shouldn't be the case. Now, tonight, my unashamed, my unbiased agenda is to hopefully cause Acts 15 to be as much of a game changer to you as I believe it was for the church originally and as, I, as it has been for me. It's a text that you, that I hope you come to know as one of the most influential and important chapters of the Bible. Now, some may not agree with what it says. Uh, or may not agree with what I say about it, but I think this is a text that is impossible for Christians to ignore, and a tragedy if we do. Now, something that Acts 15 does that is really undeniable, and this is going to be the first statement that may cause you to kind of look at me funny, but it may confirm things you already believe, but I want to make sure that we do this smoothly, and we do this uh, delicately, and we talk about it with clarity. Something that Acts 15 does that is that I believe is undeniable it establishes itself as required reading for any Christian who is about to study the Old Testament. Do you hear that? Acts 15 puts itself out there as required reading for any Christian who is about to study the Old Testament. You say, well, what if I didn't read it first? Well, I'm glad we were reading it tonight. That's, that's, that's the way I'll, I'll say that. Acts 15, I think, the themes of Acts 15, the things that Acts 15 tells us. Acts 15 is a required reading for us to know how to study the Old Testament as Christians should study the Old Testament. You think, well, what's the difference between old and new? Well, I think that's why we should talk about it because many don't know the difference between old and new. Here's the thing about Christians. We believe all the Bible is God's word. So don't misquote me. Don't mishear me. Don't take this out of the, don't let this take out of context for you. We believe, I believe, Christians believe, anybody that doesn't isn't really a Christian we believe that all of the Bible is God's word. Leviticus, Song of Solomon, Lamentations, the good chapters, the sad chapters, the happy chapters, the bad. All of it is God's word. It's inspired. We're doing a whole series on Sunday mornings about this, right? It's all revelation from God. It's all inspiration from God. Genesis 1 to Revelations 21, right? All of it is God's word. I just want to make sure I say that because I believe that. And never will doubt anything, never will believe anything other than that. All of it's inspired. All of it's inspired. But we believe this, and, and I, I think this is something that you'll agree, but maybe somebody might would say, I don't know about this. The New Testament 
has authority over the old. The New Testament has authority over the old, as in, in terms of how we interpret it and how we apply it, the New Testament has rank. Now, that, might, that shouldn't be controversial to say, but some people might would say, well, what are you trying to say, Justin? I'll make it very clear. The New Testament has authority over the old in terms of interpretation and application, which is why I would say it's important to know how to read the old. It's through the lens of the new. Now, Acts 15 is one of the texts that pretty much confirms that this is a must in terms of a posture and approach that we take toward the Old Testament. Again, this shouldn't be controversial. Jesus said as much. It's why he was rejected. It's why he was targeted. It's why he was killed by the Jewish leaders. Jesus showed up and said this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I'm not coming to get rid of it. I'm not coming to abolish it. I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. Now, let me explain what he's saying there. He's saying to the Jewish leaders, your Bible is not done. You may think Malachi is the end of the story, but you haven't met me. And now that you have met me, I say unto you, remember what did he say in that chapter? You've heard it said of old, but I say unto you. Moses said, but I say, who are you to say that you're on Moses' level? Jesus would say, I'm above him. I'm the one that gave his word to him. But now I'm here to say something better. I'm here to say something bigger. I'm here to do something greater. So I have not come to get rid of it. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to finish it. I've come to add to it. I've come to complete it. So this is what Jesus does in this moment. Because what does he do in Matthew 5? He goes back and he quotes Old Testament and he says, you think it says this, but here's what it really says. You think it's okay to hate people, but just not kill them. But I say to you, if you hate them, it's as bad as killing them. You think it's okay to lust as long as you don't actually commit adultery. But I say to you, if you think about it, you've done as much as doing it. You think it's okay to hate your enemies, but I say to you, love. So we see what Jesus is doing there, don't we? Now, the reason why they fought that what they thought was right is because they had no other word to tell them. And then Jesus showed up. So you know what Jesus does in that moment? Jesus and his imperatives are established as the only authoritative lens. So this isn't my way. This isn't some other preacher's way. This isn't Baptist or this isn't Calvinist or Arminian. This isn't somebody, some theologian's lens. This is Jesus. Only Jesus is the authoritative lens through which we can properly read the Old Testament. As in, if we're not reading it through the way Jesus tells us to read it, we're, we're in trouble. As in, and, and again, I'm not that this is not obvious. Now, Jewish people would disagree with me, right? Jewish pe people that are Jewish religious-wise, right? Not Christian Jews, but Jewish people, Jewish believers, Old Testament Jews. They would say, I'm a heretic, which they said Jesus was before me. So, hey, I'm okay with that. I have all respect for them in the world, right? Just like any other, other religious person would say, I'm crazy. Not, you know, just different. I'm just not dealing with their text. The Old Testament is the text of Judaism. And, I, and Christians believe that Jesus is the authoritative lens that actually makes it make sense. Now, if you fail to see it through Jesus, we diminish Jesus and we run the risk of getting crossed up and realizing his vision for Christianity and especially for the church. Now, now we understand why. Now we get into the, the, the territory of why this can be messy. Because is the church just a, supposed to be a, a new version of Judaism? Or is it something completely different? 
which is what the difference is if we just read the Old Testament on its own or if we read it through Jesus. Now, if we fail to see through Jesus, we will miss out what Jesus is actually leading us into. And I'll argue that if we don't do this like we should, for that reason, the church often doesn't do this like we should. And that's why the church drifts from, from Jesus to religion. And that's why the church often doesn't really understand who it really is. And that's why there's an identity crisis within the church. And sometimes we're a lot more religious than we are full of Jesus. Now, this is easy to do. There's a whole religion established in the Old Testament. I know that, right? You know that. Judaism is propped up by the Old Testament. But if you really read the Old Testament, it's clear all throughout that it was never the permanent fix. It was a temporary model. The book of Hebrews is a whole book all about this. And imagine the Jews that read that in the first century. They were completely offended. The book of Hebrews confirms that the Old Testament religious model was a temporary system. Meant to cause people to run to Jesus once he was revealed. Now, some did, some didn't. Now, as we've studied Acts, we saw, we've seen this was not easy for the Jews. They were so attached to and wired by their religion, they did not just have a problem with Jesus. They were against and opposed Jesus. And they, were, uh, they thought the church was, was, you know, uh, was a threat to their beliefs. That's why, that's why that even Jews who did not reject Jesus and believed he was Messiah, even they had a hard time letting go of their old replaced convictions. And this is why it's important for, the, for this conversation. Because there were many Jewish Christians who had trouble letting go of their Jewishness, of their Judaistic beliefs. They had trouble seeing the old through the lens of Jesus. They were still seeing through the lens of their religion. Remember back in Acts 10 and 11? Remember what happened? That old lens made them think Gentiles could not be saved. Remember Peter says, I'm not going. Yes, you're going to go, Peter, and you're going to like it. You're going to like it, and you're going to spread the gospel to Cornelius. And then Peter stands up at the church later that day. He's scared to death because people are with pitchforks and torches saying, Peter, you should not have ever went to his house, much less share the gospel with him. And Peter says, hey, I know y'all. I was one of y'all. I didn't believe they could get saved either, but I watched it happen. So we see this shift in this movement. And tonight we're going to deal with the issue that the Jewish Christians believed that salvation was not by grace alone, which is ironic because how did they get saved? Which we'll talk about that. Their belief that salvation was not only by grace, but was also by works. They believed it was some mixture of grace and works, which I think definitely is a message that we need to hear because we so subtly fall for this trap. And it's hard to notice in the mirror. But where it shows up is how we treat non-believers and how we treat those uh, maybe new believers who have just gotten saved. We often look at people and we wonder why they're not measuring up to our standard. We wonder why they are not maturing at the right pace. So this is why it's important for us to talk about. Because the way we see the outside world, the way we see new believers, the way we see non-believers is, is influenced by what we believe about salvation and how we are presenting salvation. It all comes to a head in Acts 15 as the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem, already iffy about Gentiles even getting a chance to believe, are very uncomfortable with the idea that Gentiles can just get saved without any knowledge of Moses or any knowledge of Judaism, without any knowledge about how offensive their lifestyles are to Jews, how sinful their habits are. The Jewish Christians are thinking, you know, uh, are we just supposed to trust these people into Jesus' hands? 
I mean, are we just supposed to believe that his power is going to change them without our religion? Now, I'm just telling you what they're thinking. We'll read it. They're thinking, Paul, you know, all the disciples, are y'all supposing that we're just supposed to trust the Spirit of God to change their life? I mean, come on, what kind of joke is that? It's the craziest idea ever. They've got to become Jews first. They've got to become religious first. And then they might get saved, but we can't even guarantee that. Now, we want to scoff at that idea of, you know, lack of faith and bad theology. But what Acts 15 reveals is that if we've been in church for a while, the thing that they struggled with is something that we struggle with. That there's a little bit of religion in all of us. And here's what it does. It damages and threatens to destroy our evangelistic spirit. That when we let this religious tendency set up in us and we begin to see people through this kind of legalistic works-based lens, we begin to see people through this Old Testament Judaism lens, we lose our evangelistic spirit because we doubt that God can actually change somebody's life unless they do something that we want them to do. We put burdens on them. We put boundaries around them. When we allow religion to get a little bit and have a lot of control over us, we will have our evangelistic spirit damaged, maybe even destroyed. And also what it does, and maybe more importantly, it will harm our own walk with Christ. Because when we allow religion to get in us, our faith is diminished and we begin to drift away into our own righteousness. Now, that has happened in all of us. It happens in this chapter. Now, I've, I know we've had a big introduction, but I wanted to make all this make it very clear before we started unpacking the rest of the story. So Acts 14, we get the conclusion of Paul's first missionary journey. Everybody's rejoicing because people are getting saved. The church at Antioch is ecstatic. Why wouldn't they be? I mean, the gospel is saving lives. The gospel is changing lives. Apart from the context and environments that many thought it relied on. So this is the big deal. Nobody believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. Nobody really believed that that message couldn't work outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judaism, outside of Israel. How in the world is it going to work? They've never heard of Moses. They've never heard of David. They've never read the Old Testament. How are we going to get to them without all of those prerequisites? And Paul said... You might not like the way I'm going to do this, but here's how I'm going to make a difference. And I don't need the environments, and I don't even need the context, even though I think a lot of it. Paul's message was, in Christ, God has done something in the world for the world. What have we read about from Paul as he went to the Gentiles? He told the Gentiles, God, the one God, had sent his son. And that one son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, he did something visible, historical in the world. And it was for the world. It wasn't just for Israel. It wasn't just for a certain group of people. It was for everybody. And his spirit is working from that event in time forward. And by your faith in him and in his finished work, God can do something through you, in you and through you, that if you trust that Jesus Christ is the son of God, he died for your sins, he rose back to life to give you new and better life, that by faith in him, God can do something in you and through you that religion will never do. 
That was Paul's message. He didn't tell them about Moses. And I'm not saying anything bad about Moses. It's God's word. He did not tell them about Judaism. He did not go through the commandments and the law. He said, listen, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're a sinner. We've all fallen from the glory of God. Christ has come to our level and died in our place. And by faith in him, God can change your life. And the Spirit of God that raised him from the grave will move into your life. And he will make a difference. That was Paul's message. And guess what? It worked. Man, if we could just get back to that, I'm right. The simple gospel message, which is what we're having this conversation about. When the Jewish Christians got back to Jerusalem, uh, when, when the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem got wind of this, they weren't happy. You think, man, how can you not be happy about that? It's awesome to think about and talk about it. It makes us feel good to hear it, thinking about it. Why would nobody, why would people have a problem with that? Why would anybody say this isn't enough? The proof was in the hearts, right? But the Jewish Christians, they were worried. <laughs> you mean, you didn't teach them about Moses? You didn't get them to commit to the Jewish law. You didn't get them to commit to the Jewish traditions. You didn't get them to commit to the Jewish ceremonies. You mean you told them Jesus was enough? And that's it? You're just going to turn them loose and believe that they're going to be okay. And, and, and Paul would say, no, 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 I'm not going to turn them loose. I'm going to write letters to them. And I'm going to make copies of the gospel narratives. And through the teachings of Jesus and the letters of the apostles... God is going to lead and guide and change their lives. We're writing, we're writing a New Testament. And God's going to use that New Testament, coupled with the Old, but God's going to use this New Testament to teach people who Jesus is and lead them and follow Him faithfully. And then the Jewish Christians, the Jewish leaders said, What? You mean you're going to write them letters? Like, your words are on the same level of Moses? I mean, do they, they don't need your words. They got Moses' words. Who are you? And that's the point. The Jewish believers actually mobilized and sent a group out to counter Paul in his teaching. To correct his heresy. Acts 15, verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea... And it says come down, but Jerusalem was on a mountain. So going down, they still were going north. They were going to north to Antioch. They were going down the mountain. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And unless you are circumcised is code word for unless you become a Jew, unless you follow the Jewish law and commit to the Jewish ceremonies and do all the things that Jewish law tells you to do, you can't literally, or you can't actually be saved. Unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you can't be saved. Oh, did Paul tell you that you could be saved by believing in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and that he can change your life? Did he really say that? Well, he left a little bit out. Now, this isn't some rival group. This is the church. The church from Jerusalem sent people to counter Paul's message. And then verse 2 says, Therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension to dispute with them, and they determined 
that Paul and Barnabas and certain others should go up to Jerusalem. So basically, this group from Jerusalem gets in a fight, not physical, but, you know, a, a tension between Paul and Barnabas and Antioch. So now you have this house divided. The certain people from Jerusalem versus the church at Antioch. And they are locking horns. And this isn't pretty. I mean, can imagine this is not going to be good for the church to be divided at such an early point in ministry. And this is a big deal they're divided over. I mean, who's right? The same debate lingers today. The Jews were mixing and matching. The Jews said, Jesus gets you in, but the law keeps you in. And in certain Christian circles, that sounds kind of good. And you'd be surprised some Christians would shake their heads at that. Let me make this very clear. That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. Never has been, never will be, at least not from my mouth. That is not the gospel. The idea that a commitment to keeping laws and Jewish ceremonies and traditions is necessary to keep one safe is not Christianity. It's not. That's not what trusting in Jesus looks like. And, and, and honestly, anybody that tries to say, well, I'm saved, but this is how I live. Let me just give you a little bit of heads up about what's going on in their heart. I know I don't know what's going on, but I kind of have a hunch. Anybody that says that is Christianity, they have no true rest in Christ. And as a result, they have no true power from Christ. Because if you are resting in yourself for salvation, then you are not resting in Christ. And as a result... You do not have power from Christ. And I would have a hunch that you're miserable deep inside because of the burden that you're trying to bear for yourself. The Jews were saying you can't be saved unless you look like us and walk like us and behave like us. You've got to study the law. If you ever as much as stumble, you're out. You know, I know this sounds so different. It's, you know, it sounds like it would never be a problem, but I think if we're being honest... So many church members are right here. We believe Jesus initiates, but we allow religion to officiate. In some cases, we're the religion that officiates. In some cases, we're standing at the door walking, watching people walk in, and oh, we love them, and we don't want to know, we want them to meet Jesus, but we really want to make sure they understand that we officiate things the way religion tells us to. But let me make this very clear. There is no peace in this way. There is no power in this way. There is no joy in this way. This goes on every end of the spectrum, from super conservatives to super liberals, churches that allow religion to get a place and to have a foothold. This idea that our salvation is not secure or that our salvation is not secured through any other way but Jesus Christ. We obviously know that. That by faith in Him and by grace from Him alone we are saved. Emphasis in, in Him, from Him, only from Him do we find salvation. You see, the two parties in this story are fighting, are, are fighting uh, around are you, is trusting in God's salvation or does obeying God bring salvation? Are you saved by faith or are you saved by works? Let me make this, say this as authoritatively as I can. Obedience has never, does not, and will not ever save anybody. 
Not because the commandments are not right. They are. But because obedience is not achievable in and of ourselves. Do you hear that? Obedience has never saved anyone because we cannot achieve the level of obedience that is necessary. Only through Christ and by Christ can we be saved. And therefore, can we be obedient? There is a reliance on him, not of ourselves, which is good news, I think. I would imagine it's good news to hear that, right? You say, Justin, is this, is this just not really semantics? I mean, are, you, are, are, are all they want to do is to make sure people have proper instruction? I mean, you know, yeah, you can't be saved without circumcision. That sounds kind of rough. But what if they're just trying to help people? What if they're just trying to guide people? What if they just don't want this lawlessness? I, I don't think this is being semantic. I don't think this is being, being picky at all. I, I think they believe that it was something that they brought to the table that truly achieved salvation. Do you see the danger in that? And, and come on, Christians, let's be honest. Aren't we all tempted to kind of twist salvation into being something that we kind of have something to do with? Haven't we all been there? You know what happens in that moment? Self-righteousness will creep its way in. That itself is trying to stand toe-to-toe with Jesus and affront to his glory and affront to his death. And in doing so, his righteousness and his work is undermined, and we are detached from it. See, the danger is that there are rules that we can follow. And let me just say this very bluntly. There are rules that we can follow, and we'll think, well, I can do that. And these laws are, you know, heck, I, I, I can manage to keep these rules. And, you know, I'm doing pretty good. I look pretty good. I feel pretty good. I'm a lot better than most people because they don't keep them. And when we begin to lean on that and trust in our ability, the danger is we begin to take pride in what we can do. And therefore, we become judgmental of those that can't do or don't do what we do. Do you see the drift? When we begin to make salvation about something that we do, we begin to look down on those that don't do. When the only reason we can do anything is because the grace of God has given us that ability to do it. You see, Paul has four fears about this theology. Two of them for the established believer. Paul's fear is that if the established believer begins to drift from grace to works, we will be filled with pride and will be emptied of power. We will step out of Jesus into ourselves, and when we step out of Jesus into ourselves, we're emptied of him. And we lose the ability to actually withstand sin and actually make a difference. And his other fears are for the new or the potential believer. Because if a potential believer hears that salvation is kind of based on this mix of, well, grace gets you in, but you've got to keep up with it. That will overwhelm someone who has never heard the gospel. And if they hear this a, you know, mess of a gospel, which isn't really a gospel, if they hear this, they will be overwhelmed by risk. And if they do come to Jesus under these terms, oh, I've got to keep these laws and do this, and I've got to make sure I'm here at a certain time and do this at a certain time. If they become a Christian under those pretenses, they will be corrupted by religion and be useless for the kingdom of God. A lot of people get saved under this theology, and I believe they get to Jesus, but they leave Jesus and they go to religion and they're corrupted by it. And they don't realize that they are saved not by what they do, 
And they're miserable because they're wondering and worried if they're going to be able to keep up with the demand. Now, don't you see why this is such a crucial conversation for us to have and make sure we're on the right side of it? We have got to make sure we're fostering a community where people feel like they can trust Jesus to be the Savior they've been told He is, and the Bible says He is. And we cannot suppose that anything we do or we don't do adds or takes away from what Jesus alone can do. So the church leaders quickly realize the division around this issue, and they call a major meeting, the first major council meeting in church history, and this is going to establish a very big precedent. Look at verse 3. So being sent their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, that, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. So I like that Luke writes this in. Paul and Barnabas, while they're being called home for a special meeting, they continue to preach gospel, and, and they continue to preach the grace, and people are happy about it. I just think that's kind of neat. They weren't going to be quiet until they were given the approval. Verse 4, when they come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, so these Jewish Christians, some of the Pharisees who had believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So, so you have the, the, the two sides well established here. Paul and Barnabas, by grace alone, I don't need anything but Jesus, and I don't need anything but his gospel, and I can get them where I need to get them. And you've got the Pharisees over here saying, well, unless we give them the Old Testament like we've read it, unless we give them the law and the ceremony and the tradition and all this stuff, unless they come out looking just like us, they're not going to get in. And oh, yeah, Jesus is important, but all this other stuff. So here's the question. Are we going to preach a message of, are we going to preach salvation as a gift or as a work? That's the question, and there's only one way to answer it. Are we going to front load the gospel with personal responsibility or divine accessibility? Are we going to say, okay, here's Jesus, but here's all the stuff you better do because you don't ever know. He might not keep you saved. Here's what you've got to do. Or are we going to allow them to have access to God and realize that they are safe in his hands? Is it up to us to prove that we're saved, or are we just to trust that God is able to work his power through us? That's the question. That's the two paths. Finally, after much debate, Peter rises up with an incredible word. The same Peter that one time told God no, has something that we need to hear. Verse 6. The apostles and elders came together to consider the matter, and when they had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe, which we all can agree we never saw that coming, because I had never been in the same room as a Gentile all my life. I didn't think they could get saved, but clearly I was wrong. And listen to this verse. Verse 8 is so big. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. And listen, as somebody who's been in church since I have been born, as somebody who knows the hymns and can sing the songs and can quote the Bible from cover to cover, as somebody who really thinks it should be done one way and it should be done a right way and people should obey this and people should avoid
avoid that. People should give this much and people should go there and never go there. As somebody who thinks all that stuff is important and all that stuff makes me a little bit better off. There's something in me that has to swallow some pride when I see God change somebody's life when they haven't had anything that I've had except they meet Jesus. You hear that? Peter says, I am raised Jewish. I love the Old Testament. I love my religion. But I watched God save a man that couldn't even speak my language. He never read anything. But he met Jesus. And God gave him the same spirit that he gave me. Oh, by the way, I didn't get that spirit because of something I did. I got that spirit because of something he did. Peter says, now, therefore, why do we test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Peter's speaking as a Jew. That if we get in, it's the way they got in. So notice how Peter reverses the situation. He says, guys, I know that we love our religion and we love our traditions and we love our ceremony and we love our Old Testament. But come on, y'all. How do we get saved? Through Jesus and Jesus alone. How do they get saved? Through Jesus and Jesus alone. Peter reminds us the difference maker is the Holy Spirit. He gives grace. He applies grace. He changes hearts. In this moment, the Old Testament is finally put in the right light and the only light in terms of how Christians are understanding the laws and the commandments. Peter says we are not under law, we are under grace. And if we're ever going to find any use from the old, it's because of what Jesus shows us, not because of what religion has. Church, what do we preach? That they must obey this and perform this and keep that and attend on this day and wear those clothes and avoid those things. No, we preach Jesus Christ crucified for our sins, raised back to life and alive in the heart of every believer. That's what we preach. The Apostle Paul would go on to write this in Romans chapter 8. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For what for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that this is big in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, not by what we do, but by the spirit he gives us. So why are we saved? Because God put his spirit in us that replaces sin and gives us life. And what does it mean for a Christian? That we might live according not to the flesh, but live according to the spirit with our minds on the things of the spirit. God entrusts us into his spirit's power and he doesn't make sure we sign up to every other religious thing in order to get there. He believes his spirit can do the job. Of course he can. He's God. You know what's better than Ten Commandments? Or any commandment of old? What did Jesus say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. But you can't have the first without the second. 
shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all law and the prophets. You know what Jesus does in this moment? That how we treat one another authenticates and validates the love we claim to have for God. What did Jesus teach throughout his ministry? About what it means to be a child of God, how we are to live our life in honoring God and in honoring one another. What did Jesus say the night before he died? A new commandment I give to you. Not number 11. This one replaces all of them. Love one another as I have loved you. Love one another. See what he's doing here? He makes it about a relationship. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. Paul says, I don't care how you worship and what you look like and what you wear and where you go. What matters, the only thing that counts is faith working through love. And faith will work. If it doesn't, it's not real. Holy Spirit does not move into somebody and leave them the same. He changes lives, but that's his job to do it, not mine, not yours. Church, it matters that we preach the gospel in the right way, lest we confuse people with religion, and worse than that, lest we help nobody in the process. Only the grace of God, only the grace of God and a love for God and others can make any difference. The New Testament does not lower the standards, it really raises them up. Because we can't sin against someone we love, and we can't sin with someone we love. The New Testament teaches from this place, showing us the grace of God and leading us in what love looks like from God in us and through us. Much, if not most, of the Old Testament imperatives come across this line and are repeated in the New. But the religious stuff, the ceremony, the tradition, the self-righteousness, none of that comes. None of that has a place in the church, lest it spool the mission and quench the spirit. You know what's better than self-righteousness? God's righteousness. Made free for all, making a difference in all. At the end of all this, James, the brother of Jesus, who's the leader, even above Peter, stands up. Not to denounce Peter, but to affirm him. And we'll look at this in more detail next week, but I want to close with this. James stands up and says, in summary... Here's what we should tell the Gentiles. He condenses the entire Old Testament down to two points. He says, let's tell the Gentiles, don't be insensitive to others' weaknesses. And don't be immoral towards or with anyone. He said, y'all are worried about them knowing what the Old Testament says? We'll get there, but let's just make sure they get these two things. Don't be insensitive and don't be immoral. Man, how different the church would be if we followed these two. Come on. Don't be insensitive. Not everybody's where you are. Respect that and pray for them and help them and encourage them and strengthen them. Don't be insensitive. And don't be immoral. With anybody or towards anybody. James says this all. James, are you sure? He said, yeah, I'm sure. Jesus is enough to get them the rest of the way. The Bible says that they rejoiced when they got this letter. The Gentiles were resting in the grace of God. They rejoiced in hearing this good news. 
We'll look at it in more detail next week. But at the end of this, James says, my entire passion is that we not make it difficult for anybody turning to God. He says, do you really want to put all these boundaries and burdens in front of people that are trying to get to Jesus and give them all this religious stuff that's not going to help them? No. Let's not make it difficult for anyone to turn to God. But rather, let's entrust everyone to the power of God, which can turn any life around. Don't you see why this chapter is such a big deal? What if the church used this chapter as its guiding light in every season? Let's not make it difficult for anybody trying to get to God. Let's make it as clear and accessible as possible because Jesus made it that way. Let's not build boundaries and burdens. Let's make it as easy as we can because the gospel has done that. And let's entrust everybody to the power of God because that's the only way lives are going to be changed. Isn't that right? Church, I know this was long. I know this was a lot to talk about, but it's very important. And the church needs to talk about this more often because this is how we change the world. Let's get rid of the religion. Let's get rid of the, what I think and what you think, with all due respect. And let's get back to what God has said and what God has done and what changes lives, which is the grace of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what God you say? That's what can get anybody saved. That's all that can get anybody saved. Let me pray for it. Father, thank you for this important conversation. Lord, I, I know this is a lot to take in tonight, and I, I believe everybody here tonight already agreed with what you taught us. But, Lord, it's so easy for religion to get in the way of the gospel. It's so easy to think, well, they've got to do this, and they've got to do that, and you know, I did this, and I went this way, and, I, and we bring all sorts of other things and ideas into the picture. But Lord, would you help us just trust all this into your hands? And, and Lord, what I hope would happen and what I pray will happen and what I believe you want to happen through all of this is that we might not be stunted in our evangelism. That we might be enthused and we might be energetic and we might be eager to take the gospel to people that have never heard anything that we have ever, that we know and all the things that we know that are good and important. That we might have the courage to go to people who don't know all that we know and we might just have the confidence to give them Jesus and trust that Jesus can change their lives. That's all that can make a difference. That's all that will make a difference. God, would you use this scripture to guide us and would you use this scripture to encourage us and remind us of how we got saved and why it's only going to be, why that same message is what's going to change anybody's life. Lord, help us to not be insensitive. Help us, not, help us to never be immoral. But help us to love one another that people might see the power of God in us. We ask this in Jesus' name.